Guy meets Girl. Guy has a popped collar and an arsenal of pickup lines, and Girl has a brandy. Guy tries the one about her right leg being Christmas and her left leg being Easter, and Girl pretends to not speak any English, but Guy thinks she's just plain hard to get and asks her if she's got a mirror in her pocket because he can see himself in her pants. Girl shakes her head, no English, no English, and Guy says, here, let me draw it for you, and makes a pictorial representation of the pickup line on a bar napkin. Girl takes her own napkin and writes a series of trigonometric equations, and when she hands it to Guy, he says, sorry, I don't speak Egyptian, and does another drawing, hoping to make his intentions more explicit. Girl responds with analytic geometry and calculus, and Guy is unsure of how to proceed. Perhaps this is how courtship is conducted in her culture. He takes another napkin and copies down the math equations, which he thinks are hieroglyphics, and proudly presents them to Girl, who furrows her brow in disapproval. What did I do wrong, thinks Guy. Did I offend her? Guy wonders if anyone in the bar speaks Egyptian. His guess is... Probably not. Girl jots down the Pythagorean theorem and passes it to Guy. Guy knows he's seen this somewhere before, but what does it mean? Guy has always assumed his rugged charm and toned biceps could conquer any woman, even the foreign ones, but this sultry Egyptian firecracker is sure putting up a fight. A little 2 plus B little 2 equals C little 2. Guy's not stupid. He can figure this out. His coaches always said he had what's called sports intelligence. Guy can get any girl he wants. If he wants the prom queen, he gets the prom queen. If he wants the first runner-up, he gets the first runner-up. Guy lost his virginity at 11 to the babysitter. Even then he had the goods, as they say. And since then, he's been unstoppable. Mothers lock up your daughters, Guy thinks when he's on the prowl. Mothers lock up yourselves. Guy looks at the napkin, then at the girl. He has to have her. She's so sexy. And Egyptian. He'll make love to her slowly at first, delicately, but little by little she will know of his animal power. Can she not see this in his biceps, in his virile rugged charms? Guy is sweating now. A little two plus B little two equals C little two. The girl watches him with amusement and orders another brandy, and Guy stares at the Pythagorean theorem. He knows he's seen this before. It's just on the tip of his tongue. A little 2 plus B little 2 equals C little 2. The girl's laughing at him now. Why is she laughing? He's not stupid. He can do this. Sports intelligence, his coaches said. A little 2 plus B little 2 equals C little 2. It's a sure thing, a done deal. By the end of the night, she'll be begging him, an Egyptian, for more. Guy meets Girl. Guy wears a suit of armor. Girl wears a conical hat. Guy asks Girl if there are any dragons she'd like him to slay for her, 
and girl says no, to which guy says, how about any basilisks? And girl says, no, no basilisks. And guy is stumped as far as fearsome beasts are concerned, and asks girl what sort of heroic deed she's expecting him to perform. Girl says, look, I'm sure you're a nice guy, but my personal feeling is that dragon slain and daring do are overrated as foundations for a romantic relationship, so why don't you find some other lady-in-waiting who gets all hot and bothered over a shield and a blood-drenched sword? Guy says, With all due respect, if you don't want me to slay a dragon, how am I supposed to prove my undying love for you? And Girl says, Typical male thinking, which causes Guy to scratch his iron helmet. Guy says, If you think about it, what expression of devotion could be more visceral than the impaling of a fire-breathing beast, the dodging of its deadly talons, the risk of life and limb? Girl says, Devotion is all well and good, but after this honeymoon period of sword-wieldings worn off, what happens if we don't share any common interests? What if we're domestically incompatible? And Guy says, I'd kill another dragon for you, which makes Girl roll her eyes. Guy says, Look at it this way. There's a lot of creeps galloping around the kingdom, and the only way to separate the wheat from the chaff is to send your suitor on a perilous quest and see if he comes home victorious or mutilated. It's tried and true. It's how things are done. Girl says, What about honesty? What about kindness? What about a sense of humor? And Guy says, I'm funny, and tries to think of a joke. Girl says, You don't even know me. Of course, physical attraction is important in a relationship, but just because I look good in a corset and a conical hat doesn't mean you should go off the lane serpents. Love me for my inner qualities, my intelligence, my idiosyncrasies and peccadilloes. Love me for my tenderness and warmth. Love me for me. Guy thinks, what's a peccadillo? And makes a note to ask the wizard the next time he passes through the enchanted forest. Girl says, sorry. I've got a big feast to get ready for, and heads toward the drawbridge over the moat. Guy calls after her, but she doesn't respond, and the drawbridge raises and obscures her from view. I'll be back, thinks Guy, and next time, I'll be honest and kind and funny, and she'll see what's what. I won't be just some jerk in shining armor. I'll be a real, bona fide Prince Charming. Guy rides off into the sunset and continues to think of a joke. Eventually, he gives up and heads for the forest to ask the wizard for a good one. Guy meets Girl. Girl is asleep. Guy is robbing her apartment. If she were ugly, Paunchy and balding and redolent of mothballs, there would be no problem. He'd grab the jewelry and the good silver and the DVD player and be on his merry way out the window. But she's not ugly. She's beautiful. And Guy is in love. Girl sleeps peacefully on a living room couch and Guy tiptoes to get a closer look at her. She looks like a girl in a painting he once stole. Lithe and sensuous and probably Dutch. He'd wanted to keep that painting, but he really needed the money. How much did he get for it? Not enough, thinks Guy. Not nearly enough. 
guy creeps over to a bookshelf and holds her framed photos up to the moonlight. Her parents, he guesses, and the girl is a child, a teenager, a college graduate. There is no boyfriend on the bookshelf. Why is girl on the couch and not nestled under the covers of her bed, wrapped in the arms of some significant other who thanks God every night for such a perfect, luminous creation? If girl sleeps alone, what chance does Guy have? Guy is a high school dropout and a drug addict and a convicted felon. He looks like no one in any painting that he has ever seen. Guy sits in an easy chair and imagines Girl inviting him into her apartment. She offers him lemonade and he accepts and they talk about whatever it is non-felons talk about. He imagines the apartment in the light of day, the sun streaming through the windows, radiating domestic warmth. This is how real people live, thinks Guy. This is how it's supposed to be. He eyes Girl's laptop and feels a deep sense of shame. He knows exactly how much he could get for it. Guy returns to Girl's side and watches her chest rise and fall with each breath. He bets her dreams are pleasant, not harrowing and jagged like his own. Guy could watch Girl sleeping for hours, watch her nose wrinkle and eyelids flutter, but she must not see him when she wakes, not now anyway. Not until he's a real man. In time, when he's kicked the habit, when he's turned the corner, he'll be ready for her. He'll meet her at the bank, or the dry cleaners, or the supermarket, somewhere where real people go, and it'll be Guy Meets Girl, just like in the movies. He waves goodbye, blows a kiss, and silently climbs out the bathroom window, and as he shimmies down the drainpipe, he offers a prayer that one day, He'll return through the door. greatest lover. He had a plastic cane, a floppy Depression-era hat, a sports jacket with suede elbows, and spittle forming on the corners of his mouth. His hair was white, his skin mottled like a quail egg, and his right hand trembled as if it were battery-operated, a vibrating miracle hand, a poor man's electric toothbrush. He walked hunched over, as if perpetually scanning the ground for loose change, and his neck protruded from his shoulders at a curious angle, like a tortoise's emerging from its shell. With great effort, he eased himself onto his favorite stool, and, after an unattractive clearing of his throat, he made a rococo flourish with his non-trembling left hand. Sweet Loretta, he said, be a dear and make me my usual. Loretta, the bartender, reached into a nearby garbage bucket full of ice and pulled out a Miller Lite, 
which she placed in front of the world's greatest lover after popping the cap off against the edge of the counter. The world's greatest lover was always expecting her to make a gin and coke, as usual in the pre-Eisenhower years, but the bar only served beer, and since the taps broke, it only served beer from garbage buckets, so Miller Lite was his new usual, and he accepted it, silently, with a scowl. In my day, liquor was an aphrodisiac, he said, to no one in particular. Not this fetid drek brewed by incompetence, deviance, and invalids. The world's greatest lover had started frequenting the bar two months after Loretta was hired. Although he was often unpleasant, he was perfectly harmless, and Loretta had a soft spot in her heart for any customer she never had to threaten with her Louisville slugger. Yes, times were different back then, said the world's greatest lover. Put a gin and coke in my hand and I could work some magic. They still serve gin and cokes, said Loretta, pouring more ice on the beer. Try the fancy places downtown, without the garbage buckets. The bar didn't have a name, at least not officially. In the phone book it was listed as Lenny's Everglades South, but if anyone called and asked if this was Lenny's, Loretta was supposed to say, no, technically, no. It was meant to have been sold a month into Loretta's tenure, but she'd been working for four years and it still existed in the same state of limbo, like a death row prisoner who couldn't seem to get himself executed. If she answered the phone, she said, Loretta, but more often than not, she just let it ring. The calls had never once been important. Did I ever tell you about the water ballet girls? said the world's greatest lover. Lovely girls, strong thighs, could hold their breath underwater for seven minutes. I was in Beirut in 58 at the St. George Hotel, and after watching these girls' slender legs emerge from the water in crane position, I ordered each and every one a gin and tonic and invited them to my private cabana for music and light conversation. Well, needless to say, by the next morning I had seen nearly every position in synchronized swimming. Flamingo, ballet, vertical, split. It was as if Busby Berkeley had died and been reborn in the front row of a smut house. Loretta was pretty sure none of these stories were true, but either way, she tried not to think about it. Even if the world's greatest lover had been handsome 80 years ago, her limited imagination could only envision his raunchy escapades as occurring to a scoliotic, spider-veined great-great-grandpa, and the merest thought of him naked with a bevy of bathing beauties made her want to retch into the garbage bins of Miller Lite. I dated a synchronized swimmer once, said Willie, one of the other regulars. The nose clip creeped me out, and I dropped her like a bag of rocks. Loretta started working at the bar when her husband decided they needed some extra money. She hadn't worked before, on account of their kid, but her husband had said that a man shouldn't want for luxuries and made her interview for jobs within walking distance of their home. Of course, after she began bartending, her life became even less luxurious. She was fairly certain her husband used the money on the women he claimed to be teaching bird calls and she started hiding a quarter of her earnings beneath a loose floorboard in the bar for the day when she finally could summon the courage to leave him. Unfortunately, the bar's customers were notoriously lousy tippers, so she didn't expect to have enough courage for a long, long time. 
Now you take these men today, said the world's greatest lover, barely touching his miller light. They think they can woo a woman with shiny shoes and a nice suit and a handful of money, but a man like that is no more than a common gigolo. Now, when I was a young man, I used to challenge myself, put on a burlap sack, smear my face with mud, cover my skin with leeches, and still the women flocked, powerless to resist my charms, and they'd slip inside my sack until the early hours of the morn. What about the leeches, said Willie. The men today, said the world's greatest lover, ignoring him, have no respect for the art of lovemaking. In my day, it was a ballet, a sonnet, a concerto for two violins weaving between consonants and dissonance in the night. It was poetry. It was music. It was the celestial dance of life itself. What about the leeches, repeated Willie, louder and with better diction. Loretta met her husband, he was the handsomest man in town. This seemed important then, but became less important as he began methodically ruining her life. He knew 57 different bird calls, all birds found in the continental U.S., and when he came home late at night, he'd say, Oh, Miss Appleby wanted to learn the worm-eating warbler, or the babysitter was curious about the sharp-tailed grouse, and would cup his hands and produce a shrill, piercing squawk. Loretta would walk down the street to the bar and hear a robin or a blue jay, and instead of thinking of the beauty of nature, she'd imagine her husband with Mrs. Patterson or her teenage daughter and would throw rocks at the trees until the songs graciously stopped. When she had the kid, she thought it would smooth things out between them, that he could teach his songs only to her, but he kept expanding his repertoire. Morning Dove, Chimney Swift, Fish Crow, and when she tried to imitate his calls, he just shook his head and laughed and said, Face it, hun, some people just wasn't meant to sing. For a time, she practiced on her own, hoping to one day surprise him. But the sounds never came, and she resigned herself to silence. The most beautiful woman I ever loved, said the world's greatest lover, had no arms or legs, but the remaining parts of her were so lovely you knew her limbs were unnecessary, they would only detract from her overwhelming beauty. I carried her through the streets of Vienna, across the Danube and the magnificent Austrian Alps, and in a mountain clearing above Salzburg I lay her on a bed of fragrant edelweiss, and we made sweet love as the cry of a goat herd echoed infinitely across the valley. When we had finished, and the echoes were in their thousandth iteration, she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and said, you're the only man I've been with who hasn't asked about my arms and legs. And, as I stroked her hair with tenderness and affection, I said, I've never been interested in anything I couldn't possess. Loretta poured more ice in the garbage buckets and served Willie and other coors. In two more hours, she'd walk the half mile to her house, turn her key in the lock, and find the kid and her husband sound asleep, unless her husband was out giving a late-night hummingbird colloquium. When she walked through the door in the silence of the night, it was much easier to pretend she was returning to a home, a sanctuary of love and fidelity, surrounded by four walls and a shingled roof, instead of merely a structure that cost a thousand dollars a month with a neglected kid and a man who barely spoke to her. It was so peaceful, so quiet, 
there was no indication that anything could possibly be wrong, and even her limited imagination could envision a scenario where her husband loved her, and her kid wasn't always crying, and there were no birds, none whatsoever. But when the dawn broke, and the birds burst into song, she was incapable of lapsing into daydreams, and the harsh reality of her life was inescapable, surrounding her like the walls of her house not home, and it was all she could do not to surrender right there, waving a white flag and waiting for the enemy to collect her. Sweet Loretta, said the world's greatest lover, I must bid you adieu. Tonight, I have a date with fortune. The world's greatest lover placed a dollar on the counter and heroically struggled from his stool, testing the floor as if it were a newly frozen pond and tentatively shuffling toward the door. He exited the bar the same way he came in, like a turtle returning to the sea, and when a middle-aged woman entered, he gave her a wide, toothless grin and winked with the one eye that would still wink. Loretta took the world's greatest lover's dollar and placed it in her money box, and at the end of the night, when the customers had left for their homes, she would lift up the loose floorboard near the now-broken taps and add a quarter of her earnings to her stock of courage, hidden beneath the bar's half-rotting plywood, safe from her husband and his want of luxuries. When the courage grew strong enough, she would leave with a kid for Jacksonville, maybe even Atlanta, but until then, she let it accumulate beneath her feet, gaining momentum, promising her deliverance to a new life. The middle-aged woman sat down and ordered a miller, then asked if this was Lenny's Everglades South. Loretta said, no, technically no, and buried her hand in the ice. girl. Over the phone, girl sounds sexual and breathless. Guy likes his girls to reenact the play-by-play of the 1999 Rose Bowl, but girl doesn't know anything about football, so Guy has to give her a few pointers. 
Okay, says Guy. So we have the critically maligned Wisconsin Badgers up against the powerhouse UCLA Bruins. The Badgers are big underdogs, but they're scrappy. They've got heart. It's the fourth quarter, 31-28 Wisconsin, and the Bruins have the ball after a Wisconsin punt. Cade McNown goes back to pass, light rush, throws deep down the right sideline, and he... He's intercepted. Fletcher's at the 40, the 30, the 20, the 10. Touchdown, Wisconsin. There's a long pause, and then Guy says, so pretty much just do something like that. Girl has no idea what Guy just said. She says, can I just talk dirty in a sportscaster voice or something? But Guy says, no, you have to call the action, or I'm taking my business elsewhere. Girl takes in a deep breath. Okay, she says. UCLA takes the ball, then Wisconsin, um, I-, I can't do this. No, 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 says Guy. You're doing great. Keep going. Okay, says Girl. Wisconsin makes a touchdown. Then UCLA makes a touchdown. Then they keep making touchdowns again and again. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. Good, says Guy. Just like that. All right, says Girl, getting confidence. So now the crowd's on their feet. They're screaming. They're yelling. They've never seen so many touchdowns. They burst onto the field, and now the fans are making touchdowns too. Everyone's scoring on each other, right and left. Wisconsin on UCLA. Wisconsin on Wisconsin. Fan on fan. Fan on Wisconsin. Good God, in all my years of broadcasting, I've never seen anything like this. It's a mad orgy of touchdowns. There's another long pause, and then Girl says, So, how was that? But the line is silent and dead. Figures, thinks girl, as she takes the next call. They never say goodbye. Guy's English 212, Intro to Writing Fiction. For assignment number one, Guy's students are supposed to write a short scene featuring a conflict, and Girl has handed in a story about wanting to sleep with her intro to writing fiction teacher, which Guy reads alone in his study, with a red pen and a glass of wine. Guy tells himself this is just a piece of fiction. She procrastinated, needed a quick conflict, and this is what popped into her head. Still, The use of the second person does make him wonder. I want you. I have to have you. He sips the wine, corrects some spelling errors. The prose is unimaginative, but fine for assignment number one. Guy reads Girl's story again. Usually he gives these exercises a cursory scan and calls it a night, but this one he can't put down. Girl states with alarming specificity the things she'd like to do to him during regular office hours, and he writes good details in the margins of her paper and wipes the sweat off his brow. The thing is, of course he's interested in Girl. She's 18 years old and wears those ridiculous frilly skirts that always distract him when explaining the importance of character development. But he keeps telling himself, it's just fiction, it's just fiction, and X's out misplaced modifiers. Maybe this is some sort of administrative sting operation. The English department is trying to clean house of any professors who would dare break the code of ethics and have enlisted the aid of attractive, provocatively dressed freshmen. Still, he's a creative writing teacher. 
what do they honestly expect him to do? They've hired him to publish, and an extramarital affair with a young, nubile student is great material for a novel or short story collection. Chekhov used prostitutes, Gunter Grass served in the SS, William Burroughs shot his wife. All in all, sleeping with a consenting creative writer seems pretty low on the authorial ethics violation food chain. Guy's wine glass is empty, and he pours himself some more. How best to respond, thinks Guy, without losing my job or my dignity. Perhaps he could assign a steamy short story about a May-December romance and see if Girl takes the bait, but he already has his lesson plan built around Joyce Carol Oates and is loath to add to his workload. Of course, as a writer, he doesn't need to actually sleep with her. He can use his literary powers of extrapolation to fashion a perfectly believable account of a professor's torrid affair and pass it off as autobiographical, and no one would be the wiser. That's the beauty of writing. It allows you to sin without facing the consequences. Still, Guy is in a bind. This is the kind of situation that is great for fiction, but terrifying in real life. If Guy were a brash Hemingway type, he'd go for it. But he's just an underwhelming, ineffectual academic. And with tenure on the way, he better not take any chances. He certainly can't pass up the health benefits. In his story, he'll write Girl a salacious email, and they'll embark on a passionate affair that spirals wildly out of control until the shocking denouement. But for now, he just writes effective use of conflict and appends a plus to her A. July, and they are standing in a cemetery. From the cemetery's tallest hill, there is a clear view of the fireworks, a few miles over the lake, and a contingent of ten people or so have gathered in the graveyard to admire the distant explosions. Guy is with friends, girl is alone. She looks not at the sky, but at the graves. Guy asks girl if she knows anyone buried in the cemetery, and she says, yes, my brother is buried here. Guy starts to ask how he died, but thinks the better of it and bites his tongue. My parents and I visit his grave every day, says Girl. We've met a lot of other families here. We've made a lot of friends. Red sparks fizzle over the lake, and the crowd oohs and awes. We got him a granite headstone, says Girl, because granite doesn't dissolve like marble. We kept it simple, just his name and the dates and forever in our hearts. Guy asks when he died, and Girl says, five months ago. He's over there, she says, and points to a hill briefly illuminated by cascading white phosphorus. The best part about an urban cemetery, says Girl, is that in the daytime it's full of life. People walk their dogs, get some exercise, watch the squirrels and the birds. The other day, a kid was learning to ride a bike on the path by my brother's grave, his dad at his side. And by the time we left, he was riding by himself, pedaling past the headstones and obelisks, as his dad proudly watched from the grass. Do you know anyone buried here? says Girl. And Guy says, no, he does not. The fireworks are supposedly synchronized to music on the local oldie station, and someone in the cemetery has an old boombox playing the Supremes 
and chubby checker, and Elvis. Love Me Tender bounces off the mausoleums, and the sky flashes purple and blue. Guy watches girl's face flicker in the dark, and wants to ask her one more question, but he's not sure it's appropriate, and keeps it to himself. Gazing at the ghost trails of showering sparks, girl says, That was beautiful. And Guy says, Yes, it was. <laughs>